this is episode one of the podcast. It's called For All Time. My name is Don Johnson, and it is December 30th, 9.29 a.m., and uh, I'm going to read you a news story. Royals Report. This is in the USA Today, uh, Tuesday, December 28th, the Life Section. Windsor Castle Arrest. British police said Monday they were investigating a video linked to a man armed with a crossbow who was arrested at Windsor Castle on Christmas Day. The video, obtained by the Sun newspaper, showed a masked person in a dark hoodie holding a crossbow and addressing the camera with a distorted voice, saying they wanted to assassinate, in quotes, Queen Elizabeth II. The Sun also said the video was sent from the subject's Snapchat account shortly before he was arrested. Police said they arrested a 19-year-old man within the grounds of Windsor Castle after a security breach took place on Christmas morning. Officers found a crossbow after searching the man. Follow that up. The next day, Wednesday, December 29th, the New York Times International section, uh, Castle Breach Stirs Debate Over Britain's Crossbow Law. London, Isabella Kwai. Regulations governing crossbows in Britain are receiving renewed attention after a man was apprehended with one on the crowns of Windsor Castle, where members of the royal family had gathered for the Christmas holiday. We are considering options to strengthen controls on crossbows, a spokesman for Britain's Home Office said in a statement Tuesday, as part of a continuing review of rules on lethal weapons ordered this year by Priti Patel, the Home Secretary. The renewed scrutiny comes days after an intruder breached the castle grounds on Christmas morning. A 19-year-old man was arrested on suspicion of breach and trespass of a protected site and possession of an offensive weapon, according to the police while Queen Elizabeth II was on the premises with other members of the royal family. The British monarch had celebrated the holiday at... hmm. The British monarch had celebrated the holiday at Windsor Castle instead of her estate in Sandringham, Norfolk, as her usual practice. Buckingham Palace said the decision was a precautionary approach because of the coronavirus epidemic. The man arrested, whom police declined to identify, did not enter any buildings or endanger the royal family but police officers said they found a crossbow after searching him, adding that he was in the care of medical professionals receiving treatment for mental health issues. Under existing legislation, crossbows can be purchased over the counter or on the internet by those over the age of 18. Owners do not need a a license or certificate to operate the weapons, and, unlike shotguns or other firearms, the police do not have an official record of who owns them and how many are in circulation. Detectives said they were reviewing a video as part of the investigation. The Metropolitan Police said in the statement Monday, but declined to give further details. Controls on whether controls on weapons such as crossbows drew particular concern in 2018 after a British man broke into a neighbor's home in East Yorkshire, shooting and killing him with a crossbow and injuring his pregnant partner. In a 2021 report investigating the death of the man, a coroner for the county asked top policing officials, including Ms. Patel, to review legislation re- regulating the purchase and possession of crossbows. Evidence was heard about the power and lethal capabilities of these weapons, as well as the fact that they are essentially silent, the coroner, Professor Paul Marks, said in the report. In my opinion, he added, there is a risk that future deaths will occur unless action is taken. The Home Office said work reviewing the legislation was continuing after the episode in East Yorkshire, adding it was already already an offense to possess arrows or possess offensive weapons in public spaces without good reason, quote, good reason, or lawful authority.
Notes from our biographer by Larry David. And yes, it is. It is that Larry David. This is The New Yorker, December 6th, 2021. There are many things about me that I'm sure may be of interest to readers. Things I've never really told anyone. I've always been a private person, but I wanted to make sure I got a few things down in writing, just in case anything happens to me. Or before I forget. Like, here's something. People might be surprised to learn that I'm a speed reader. I took a course when I was a kid, and one would be hard-pressed to name a book I haven't read. Books are my constant companions. Like last year, I went to Turks and Caicos over Christmas to read The Count of Monte Cristo, and on the way there, <laughs> on the way there, and Anna Carnina on the way back. I'm glad I read them in that order. <laughs> it might have ruined my vacation otherwise. So, you know, stuff like that. Not sure how much time should be given to my stand-up years, but I've thought of a few stories that might be worth mentioning. There was one night at the improv when I made a woman sitting in the front row laugh so hard that she went into convulsions and eventually lost consciousness. An ambulance had to be called, and she was taken to Roosevelt Hospital. It was touch and go there for a while, but thankfully she pulled through. I visited her the next day with the best bouquet of flowers New York had to offer and humbly stood by while she told the nurse how damn funny I was. Pretty embarrassing, but what choice did I have? From that point on, everyone started calling me Killer. People came to the club in droves, asking if Killer was going on. It wasn't bad for my social life, either. No sooner would I finish a set than there'd be half a dozen women at the bar trying to talk to me. Kill me! Kill me, they would pant! I would choose two, and off we'd go. (laughs) One particular night, the husband showed up. I had no idea they were married, swear to God! Fortunately, my father taught me how to box when I was a kid, and there's no doubt I could have turned professional if comedy hadn't called me. In any case, I was not to be trifled with. I calmly explained this to both husbands, but they were not impressed. Two minutes later, they were laying flat in the sidewalk, whereupon their wives and I hopped into a cab and I did another set across town. When it was over, I bought a round of drinks for everyone, even though I didn't have a penny to my name. Interesting stuff, right? Hope it's useful. Either way, I'm good. Your call. There wasn't much money to be made in stand-up back then, so (laughs) he supported my fledgling comedy career by working as a tour guide at the Central Park Zoo during the day. I've always had a deep connection with animals, and I thought... That would be the perfect job for me. And it was. Until some kid was admiring the polar bear and decided to jump jump the railing and get a closer look. I was in the middle of giving a tour when I heard the screams coming from the kid's parents and raced over there. The boy was on the ground in a state of shock as the polar bear hovered over him about to attack. As luck would have it, a few months prior, I'd attended a lecture at the new school by one of the world's foremost Ursus authorities, Dr. Meyer Duesenberry, who explained to me that if we were ever to face with a bear, we should create a cacophony. Without a second to lose, I grabbed the lid off a hot dog pot from a nearby Sabret's cart, leaped over the fence, and frantically rattled the lid against the bars until the bear retreated. Then I slung the kid over my shoulder in a fireman's carry, learned from my years as a volunteer with the FDNY, and returned the youngster to his grateful parents. They offered me a huge reward, but I declined, saying that the reward was (laughs) seeing their happy faces. No amount of money in the world could top that. I kept in touch with the boy throughout his youth, and after his parents lost all their money in a Ponzi scheme, I put him through college and medical school. Today, he's on the verge of a monumental cancer research breakthrough, and is slated to appear in an upcoming cover of Time. I told him I preferred to remain anonymous in the article. You don't have to include this in the book, but if you want to, I guess there's nothing I can do about it. People always ask me what I would have done had I not become a comedian. Besides the aforementioned stints at prize fighting and animal husbandry, I was also a child prodigy at the piano. By the time I was eight, I was playing Beethoven's Hammerklavier, so Sonata <laughs> number 29 and B-flat major flawlessly. There's no telling how far I could have gone, but my budding career as a virtuoso ended when my friend, Frenchie, dropped a bowling ball on my foot. 
I broke my third and fifth metatarsal bones. I lost all proficiency with the pedals, and my tone was never the same. As I look back on the incident, what's most galling to me is I was only two strikes away from a perfect game when the accident occurred. Many years later, I ran into Frenchie at Yankee Stadium and accidentally dropped a fist in his face. <laughs> but the universe works in mysterious ways. Because the day after my bowling lane encounter with Frenchie, I attended a podiatry convention. By then, I'd become obsessed with the intricate bone, bone structure of the human foot, where I met a doctor who told me that the simple act of running might be the best thing for my injury. Soon, I was pounding the pavement nearly 30 miles a week, and before long, not only was I playing the piano again, but I had signed up for the New York City Marathon. It was my first race, but clearly I had a gift for distance running, because after 18 miles, I found myself in fifth place, only an eighth of a mile behind the leader. We were approaching the Queensboro Bridge when, for some reason, I turned to my right, behind the crowd, and noticed a holdup of a jewelry store in progress. Even though I was in striking distance of the leader, I couldn't ignore what was taking place. I made a sharp detour to my right and slithered through the crowd. When I arrived at the store, the robber was brandishing a gun at the terrified jeweler while emptying the contents of a case into a cloth sack. I proceeded to sneak up behind the thief, karate chop his arm, and render him unconscious with a sleeper hole that I picked up from watching Chief J. Strongbow in a wrestling match on TV. Then I handed the gun to the jeweler, told him to call the police, and added that if the robber were to wake up, he should shoot him if he made a move. <laughs> Mission accomplished. I made my way back to the race and still managed to finish 20th. There is no doubt in anyone's mind that had I not foiled the, the robbery, I would have easily placed top five, or maybe even one. Life's funny. Bought a new watch today and was reminded of that story for the first time in years. Can't think of any reason you'd want to use it, unless you want people to know the truth. Newsflash, there's more to me than just jokes. <laughs> I entered the marathon again the following year and thought for sure this time I'd sweep the chips. But two days before the race, I was contacted by an adoption agency. There was a child available in Romania, and she was mine if I could get there in 24 hours. As badly as I wanted to win the marathon, I couldn't pass up this amazing opportunity for years, I'd longed to adopt a child. I had so much to give, so much knowledge to impart. That night, I was off to Romania. When I returned home, it was with a beautiful, sightless little girl named Natasha, who I renamed Jill. She was six years old and didn't speak a word of English. But, given my proficiency with languages, I was fluent in Romanian within five weeks. Tragically, after a few months, Jill's birth mother showed up and begged to take her child back. How could it deprive a mother of her little girl? And so, as difficult as it was, I gave Jill up. I still write to her every day in Braille and make sure the <laughs> to attract the Bucharest annually. She's the love of my life. So they're just a few memories. Yours to use as you see fit. Just know that there's certainly a lot more where they came from. Love that one. Okay. Man should have been a writer. This is from USA Today, uh, Wednesday, December 29th, uh, Life Section. Making Waves, Ozzy Osbourne. The Prince of Darkness is headed to the world of NFTs. Osbourne announced Monday that he'll be releasing 9,666 digital bats into the NFT world on January. Each of the bats, called Crypto Bats, one word, capital C, Z at the end, Crypto Bats, has been uniquely designed from the mind of Osborne, an NFT creator at Sutter Systems. An NFT, or non-fungible token, is a piece of data that verifies you maintain ownership of a digital item, such as an artwork, meme, tweet, or in this case, a pixelated image of a bat. 
The Prince of Darkness chose to use Bats as his NFT initiation in a nod to his infamous 1982 concert in Des Moines, Iowa, during which he stuck a bat in his mouth and bit off its head on stage, shocking the audience with a stomach-churning act. <sighs> cool. Cool. Very cool. Let's see. Wednesday, December 29, 2021, Section B of the USA Today, the money section. Home prices surge 18.4% in October as boom goes on. U.S. home prices surged again in October as the housing market continues to boom in the aftermath of last year's coronavirus recession. The S&P CoreLogic Case-Shiller 20-City home, home Price Index out Tuesday climbed 18.4% in October from a year earlier. The gain marked a slight deceleration from a 19.1 year-over-year increase in September, but was about in line with what economists had been expecting. All right, and uh, uh, let's see, two-ish hours and a banana later, um, I'm back, and I'm going to read you the sixth item that we have today here for us, um, the NFL's soul. And I'll, I'll just start here. It's by Mark Cannizzaro, um, New York Post, December 29th, 2021. The sports world lost one of its most beloved and iconic figures Tuesday with the passing of John Madden, the NFL Hall of Fame coach turned broadcaster. Madden, who became known more for his unique style of broadcasting NFL games once he transitioned to the TV booth than he was for his remarkable coaching career that produced a 103-32-7 record and a Super Bowl title for the Oakland Raiders, died Tuesday morning at the age of 85, the NFL announced. The league said he died unexpectedly, and no details about a cause were released. Nobody loved football more than coach, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell said in a statement. He was football. He was an incredible sounding board for me and so many others. There will never be another John Madden, and we will be forever indebted to him for all he did to make football and the NFL what it is today. Madden's life played out in three very public phases. First as coach, then as broadcaster, and finally as face of the Madden NFL football video game franchise that sold more than 250 million copies. He, too, was one of the original sports TV pitchmen, selling beer, restaurants, and hardware stores. He was an author, too. I believe the Ace Hardware stores. People always ask, are you a coach or a broadcaster or a video game guy? Madden said when he was elected the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I'm a coach. I always have been a coach. Madden first gained fame as head coach of the Renegade Raiders, leading them to seven AFC championship games and winning the Super Bowl following the 1976 season. His 759 winning percentage is the best ever among NFL coaches with more than 100 games. That's incredible. Wow. He retired from coaching at age 42 and became one of the most recognized soundtracks to NFL games in history of the sport, calling them on TV for three decades. Madden's style was revered by all. It was a genuine, masterful combination of the everyday man with the exuberance of a wide-eyed child, all with the educating, all while educating the viewer with his brilliant knowledge of the game. Madden did that with the use of the Telestrator on broadcast to explain plays, and that's the um, that's that common device. Well, it's common today. At the time, it was kind of novel and original. He kind of invented. Well, he's 
commonly credited with kind of like inventing like using it with the audience to explain things like effectively like there's the there's the technology and there's the way to implement it and use it in an effective way and he seemingly was like the person to do that um i have looked that up in other places it's kind of neat um drawn all over the screen about plays x's and o's all that stuff kind of cool but uh let me continue here um Illustrator. He used it with his legendary vocabulary that included boom and doink throughout the broadcast. Man has anything but a novelty act. He won an unprecedented 16 Emmy Awards for Outstanding Sports. <laughs> this is a good one. Outstanding Sports Analyst slash Personality and covering 11 Super Bowls for four networks from 1979 to 2009. He began his broadcasting career at CBS after leaving coaching largely because he suffered from claustrophobia and had a fear of flying. He and Pat Summerall became the network's top announcing duo as Madden famously traveled from site to site in a mobile home, later called the Madden Cruiser. Madden later helped give Fox credibility as a major network when he moved there in 1994. He then went on to call primetime games ABC and NBC before retiring the fo following the Steelers' 27-23 win over the Cardinals in the Super Bowl Hmm, let's say 43, following the 2018 season. <laughs> For me, TV is really an extension of coaching, Madden wrote in his book. Hey, wait a minute, I wrote a book? Hmm, now maybe it's more like, hey, wait a minute. No, it's like, hey, wait a minute, I wrote a book. That's what it is. My knowledge of football has come from coaching, he said, and on TV... <laughs> All I'm trying to do is pass on some of that knowledge to viewers. Extremely valuable. I, I just need to editorialize a little bit. That is that is the purpose of a broadcaster, a sports broadcaster, in its purest sense, is to entertain and inform. But m probably number one uh, aspect of that is information, and especially when watching baseball, just inform. T please tell people what's happening in baseball, and then they'll just know what's happening in baseball, and just keep it up, and then the game is comprehensible. That's all. <sighs> My knowledge of football has come from coaching, he said. And on TV, all I'm trying to do is pass on some of that knowledge to viewers. No one did it better and with more style and likability, and no one has since. Madden was raised in Daly City, California. He played on both the offensive and defensive lines for Cal Poly in 1957-58 and earned his bachelor's and master's degrees from his school. Um, he was drafted by the Eagles, but a knee injury ended his hopes of a pro-playing career. So, Madden got into coaching, first at Hancock Junior College and then as a defensive coordinator at San Diego State. Raiders owner Al Davis brought him to Oakland as a linebacker coach in 1967, and Oakland went to the Super Bowl in his first year in the pros. He replaced John Roush as the head coach after the 1968 season, age 32, beginning his amazing 10-year run as head coach. Madden battled an ulcer in the 1977 season when the Raiders lost in the AFC title game. He retired from coaching at age 42 after a 9-7 season in 1978. Little did anyone know at the time that his fame had only begun to flourish. I love that story. That's good sports writing. Here's something fun. 
Movies Failed to Lure Older Audiences. This is by Eric Schwartzel, uh, Los Angeles. A-list stars, rapturous reviews, release strategies that only rely on the big screen. Even the biggest draws didn't draw audiences out of the house and back into the theater for many movies in 2021. Will Smith's King Richard, Steven Spielberg's West Side Story, and more than a dozen other titles will end the year in a graveyard of disastrous grosses, further calling into question whether studios will continue releasing so many adult-oriented films in theaters at all. The difficulty for such films was was highlighted by the seismic success of Spider-Man No Way Home, which had the second highest opening weekend of all time with $260 million in the U.S. and Canada earlier this month and has so far grossed more than $1 billion dollars worldwide oh i should add that this was from uh, yesterday's wall street journal front page um bottom half the result proved moviegoers will still turn out for a superhero movie even as lower budget films are heading into the holiday season with little no traction as studio chiefs assess what to do with their 2022 slate some are already planning to shift even more their non-tentpole titles to the streaming services keeping their stock prices afloat the main culprit an older movie-going populace still remains reluctant to return to theaters. The successful movies of 2021 have been oriented towards younger audiences. Spider-Man, as well as the similarly suited counterparts, Black Widow and Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings. End of sentence. The annual box office has rarely formed such a tiered system with only one adult-oriented... Oh, A8. Cool. I split it up. With only one adult-oriented drama, House of Gucci cracking the top 30 highest-grossing movies of the year. It's the casual moviegoer who hasn't come back, said Turlock Hutchinson, vice president of film at Studio Movie Grill, a 21-location theater chain with 226 screens across seven states. Many of those consumers who might have seen one or two movies a year now aren't seeing any, he said, even as younger and more frequent guests have returned. Hesitancy among older moviegoers is expected to grow with the spread of the Omicron variant of COVID-19, which proliferated in the days ahead of an all-important holiday season. Over the Christmas weekend, Spider-Man continued to dominate ticket sales at record-setting levels, while several movies appealing to older audiences, such as The Matrix Resurrections, A Journal for Jordan, and Licorice Pizza, withered. The new Matrix movie, coming nearly 23 years after the original film premiered, appealed to older audiences. About half its opening weekend audiences were older than 35. Huh. If you have a bit of an older demographic as we have, that audience is a little more reluctant, said Jeff Goldstein, president of domestic distribution at Warner Brothers. There really is a have and have-nots. That's nothing. To that end, many of the other highest-profile disappointments this year drew in older crowds and lower numbers. About 54% of opening weekend moviegoers to West Side Story were older than 35, and the movie only opened to about $10 million. The same percentage of older ticket buyers showed up for King Richard and Mr. Smith's biopic about the father of tennis greats, the Venus and Serena Williams, according to data from Studio Warner Media. I made it sound like that fact was according to Warner Media. It opened to $5.7 million and is on track to be one of the lowest grossing films of the actor's career. Other titles meant to appeal to adults came and went. The Last Duel, starring Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, The Eyes of Tammy Faye with Andrew Garfield, and The French Dispatch, a Wes Anderson film featuring Timothy Chalamet. Musicals consistently hit a flat note, from West Side Story to Broadway adaptations Dear Evan Hansen and In the Heights. 
Academy Awards favorites Nightmare Alley, Belfast, and Licorice Pizza are all headed into the awards season with anemic grosses. More is at stake than missed revenue and projections. The performance of such films raises questions about studio strategy going into 2022 when executives must decide whether to test these types of smaller films in the theatrical marketplace. When COVID-19 shut down the auditoriums in 2020, studios pushed into streaming plans and reserved theatrical releases for only the biggest movies. Most studios are already splitting the difference between theaters and at-home, oh, between theaters and at-home services. Walt Disney Company's Encanto, an animated film about a magical family, premiered in theaters on November 24th, but launched the company on the company's Disney Plus service on December 24th, giving customers an at-home option during holiday week, typically popular family movie film. Okay, so that's the the one month. Um, uh, they've been doing that with all almost all their big titles. Heading into next year, Comcast Corp's Universal Pictures, interesting way to say that, has similarly shortened the gap between theatrical release and streaming premiere for much of its coming slate. The studio will be shipping many of its 2022 films into its sister streaming service, Peacock, as early as 45 days after they they debut in theaters, the company said. The movies affected by the plan include the January action thriller The 355, starring Jessica Chastain, as well as Jennifer Lopez's romantic comedy Marry Me, due out in February. That's the Owen Wilson, he's like a guy in, she's basically Jennifer Lopez, and he's a guy in the stands with a sign that says Marry Me, and, like, she breaks up with her boyfriend, just, like, grabs this dude and, like, marries him, Owen Wilson. That's that movie. That's what that movie is. Uh, enjoy the, the the fictional version of that that plays out in your head. I guarantee that will be something to remember. Um, it's due out in February. Ticket to Paradise, starring one-time sure box office bets Julia Roberts and George Clooney, might arrive on Peacock after a little more than a month and a half after, as well after the next installment in Universal's lucrative Halloween and Downton Abbey series. In announcing the shift, the studio the studio didn't include its top priorities, Jurassic World Dominion and Minions Rise of Gru, both sequels to the studio's marquee franchises. Going forward, Exhibition Insider said studios will look to such high-profile films to draw out crowds reliably, even though smaller movies don't. It's not so much consumer habits, but whether it's an event or not, people want to be part of a global event. whether it's an event or not people yes people do want to be part of an event that's 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 the whole that's living now is being part of an event uh and that was said by richard gelfon the chief executive of imax corp the premium auditorium company people are going to want to go out for something they can't get in their home he says and he is right and that's kind of the only reason you go to the theater, obviously, is to get something you can't get at home. But if you can get it at home, why would you ever go out into their mess to deal with that? <sighs> I'm going to call this an addendum to that last uh, article. This is a... Uh, Technically, it's an opinion column. Uh, it's just analysis, basically, of 
what's going on with what I just read. Spider-Man Complicates Plot for Movie Theater Recovery. This is by Dan Gallagher. Wall Street Journal, Wednesday, December 29, 2021. It's too bad Sony can't make a new Spider-Man movie every weekend. The Web Slinger's le- latest outing, Spider-Man No Way Home, has now grossed more than $467 million domestically and topped $1 billion worldwide at the box office since its December 17th release. That makes it the biggest hit of the pandemic period by far, with the movie selling more than twice as many tickets in the, uh, as the next runner-up, Disney's Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, according to the box office tracking site The Numbers. That level of business would qualify the movie as a hit, even pre-pandemic. Only 45 other movies in history have toppled have topped the $1 billion mark globally. And with its exclusive release to theaters, Spider-Man has also given a much-needed boost to the movie exhibition industry that is still reeling from the pandemic's effects. But there is only so much a single film can do. With only a few days left in the year, the theater industry is generating less than half of the business it did before the first COVID-19 outbreak in early 2020. Damn. I mean, it's expected, but... Domestic ticket sales this year are running at only about 38% of their level in 2019, according to the numbers. That has curbed expectations significantly. Alicia Reese of Wedbush projects the domestic box office in 2022 will rise to about 60% of 2019's totals. Wall Street's revenue projections for Cinemark and AMC Entertainment in 2022 are about 83% of what the two chains managed in 2019, according to the consensus estimates on FactSet. Those projections are based in part on the notion of returning patrons having a stronger appetite, literally. Concession revenue projections for the two chains in 2022 are more than 90% of the prospective 2019 levels. Getting that level will require more movies doing big numbers, which is no small feat in the age of streaming. Spider-Man producer Sony Pictures is the only major Hollywood studio left without its own streaming outlet to fill. And, 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 you know, I'm just going to cut it off there. Um, the point that they're making is basically a very complicated way of saying that there are, like, two demographic markets for movies now. There are superhero movies and there's everything else. And everything else is about to basically not be in theaters. But also, at the same time, there's not enough superhero movies to sustain theaters. So there's about to not be theaters. So don't bet on anything sticking around too long that isn't just kind of happening at home that would be my my bet but what do i know not too much at least i didn't read that whole story to you like i was planning on like i recorded the first time i'll tell you this one is way is equally interesting game maker makes shift a chat host by kellen browning this is in uh times business wednesday december 29th In 2015, Jason Citrone, a computer programmer, was struggling to break through in video in the video game industry. The new multiplayer game he had created with his development studio, Hammer and Chisel, was not catching on. So Mr. Citrone engineered an abrupt about-face. He laid off his company's game developers, turned the game's chatting feature into its sole product, and gave it a mysterious name, Discord. I think at the time we had maybe six users, Mr. Citrone said in an interview. It wasn't clear that it was going to work. At first, Discord was popular only with other gamers, but more than six years later, driven in part by the pandemic, it has been exploded into the mainstream. 
While adults working from home flocked to Zoom, their children were downloading Discord to socialize with other young people through text and audio and video calls in groups known as servers. The platform has more than 150 million active users each month, up from 56 million in 2019, with nearly 80% logging in from outside North America. It has expanded from gamers to music aficionados, students, and cryptocurrency enthusiasts. In September, Discord, which is based in San Francisco, said it was raising $500 million in funding, valuing the company at $14.7 billion, according to PitchBook, a market data provider. It more than doubled its workforce in 2021 to about 650 people. Discord's evolution into a mainstream tool has been an unexpected twist in Mr. Citrone's career. Mr. Citrone, 37, said he grew up playing video games on Long Island, nearly failed to graduate from Full Sail University in Florida because he spent so much time playing World of Warcraft, and went on his first date with his future wife in an arcade. So many of my best memories came from those experiences. So when my career has been about giving other people the power to create those kinds of memories. So many of my best memories came from those experiences. So my whole career has been about giving other people the power to create those kinds of moments in their lives, he said. Before Discord, he ran a social gaming network, OpenFaint, which he sold in 2011 to the Japanese gaming company Gree. G-R-E-E, all caps, for $104 million. Mr. Citrone was considered by others in the gaming community to be innovative because he tried to keep gamers' attentions through social interactions with their friends, a new strategy in the nascent mobile gaming market. At least he tries to put something new into the market, said Sirkan Toto, a gaming analyst in Japan, adding that Mr. Citrone's reputation was like a Greek. Like a geek, in a good sense. I'm a professional newsreader. Now Mr. Citrone finds himself running a prominent communications platform, a shift that he has described as surprising and wonderful and humbling. Discord is split into servers, essentially a series of chat rooms similar to the workplace tool Slack. And if you are familiar with the workplace tool Slack, as they call it, um, it's basically exactly the same, just with you know a button where you can press something to play Fortnite with your friends. Um, uh, which facilitates casual, free-flowing conversations about gaming, music, memes, and everyday life. Some servers are large and open to the public. Others are invitation only. The service doesn't have ads. It makes money through a subscription service that gives users access to features like custom emojis for $5 or $10 per month. Discord also began experimenting in December with allowing some users to charge for access to their server, up to $100 a month, of which the company takes a 10% cut. Discord made $130 million in revenue last year, according to a person familiar with the company's finances who was not allowed to discuss it publicly. But company officials would not say whether it was profitable. The company's biggest shift occurred early in the pandemic. In June 2020, Mr. Citrone and his co-founder and chief technology officer, Stanislav Vishnevsky, wrote a blog post acknowledging that Discord had moved beyond video games and was working to become more accessible to all. Months earlier, the company had changed its motto from chat for gamers to a new way to chat and communicate, a new way to chat with your communities and friends, a nod to its wider audience. Yes, I do remember that. They made a big deal about that at the time. That transition has come with growing pains. Discord has faced the same thorny questions as other social media companies about regulating speech, safeguarding against harassment, and keeping young people safe. 
Discord allows people to chat using fake names, and the task of ensuring that people follow its community standards is largely left up to the organizers of individual Discord servers. That gives the platform a Lord of the Flies feel with groups of young people forming online societies and deciding their own rules. Yes. Yeah, definitely not a part of any of those, but I can imagine without a doubt that anything and everything that could happen online when I was a kid is happening times 10, and, and I I'm, and I struggle to uh, use my imagination to visualize what's going on inside there. Uh, in 2017, white nationalists gathered in far-right Discord servers to plan the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. Discord executives, despite being aware that white nationalists were on their platform, did not bar them until the rally had taken place, according to the New York Times reporting. In the aftermath, the company got more serious about content moderation. Mr. Citrone said about 15% of the company's employees work on trust and safety, or whatever that means. The company began pu publishing biannual transparency reports in 2019 and bars those from under 13 from Discord. I will read something after this, maybe, if I uh, have time, <laughs> where the, uh, I, I believe it's the, my, I think it's the Times, they interview five people under 13 who use Discord for what reason, and it is, uh, yeah, I think they might even be in this article as well. In its most recent report, Discord said it had received more than 400,000 reports of misbehavior between January and June, with about one-third related to harassment, and had banned more than 470,000 accounts and 43,000 servers. The company's efforts have not stopped frequent problems. People interviewed for this article, including some who were just 11 or 12 years old, said they knew many underage Discord users. And an internet search for, an eating, for eating disorder communities on Discord, for instance, revealed dozens of servers, some explicitly encouraging people to develop eating disorders, a violation of Discord's community guidelines. The company said it takes immediate action, in quotes, when it encounters violations like underage users or inappropriate content. Many said they joined Discord for more wholesome reasons, like connecting with friends. The largest public servers, such as ones devoted to discussions of Minecraft or anime, have hundreds of thousands of members. It can be chaotic, with colorful memes, profanity, and inside jokes. Others are intended only for people who know one another in real life or share a particular interest. Some have strict rules prohibiting profanity, graphic content, or discussions of politics. Server owners can deputize moderators to enforce the rules. Clement Laveau, 21, has a powerful role on Discord, the owner of Kanye, <laughs> a server hosting discussions of the eponymous artist, music, pop culture, and other topics with more than 58,000 members. Mr. Laveau, a New York City college student, wields ultimate authority with the power to appoint moderators and imprison people who break community rules in a solitary confinement channel known as jail. <laughs> None of that was in quotes. <laughs> it was just... Laying it out there. Okay. He said that he tries to let people be silly. This is in quotes. I'm, I, I try to let people be silly. Have a place to unwind. End quote. But that he does not tolerate hate speech or bullying. Because of the isolation caused by the pandemic, Mr. Laveau said, the bonds people have formed on Discord have become crucial. And then there's uh, they, they show like the list of rules for his Discord, which I'm sure is... Every list of rules on Discord you've ever seen. 
Former Discord employees, investors, and game industry observers say Mr. Citrone has remained uncompromising in his vision for Discord as an independent company as it has grown. Juice Van Drunen, a New York Juice Van Drunen, a New York University professor who studies the business of video games, said studying independent said staying independent would benefit Mr. Citrone's tight control over the company, which has some high-ranking executives departing in recent years. Regarding turnover at Discord, the company said that its rapid growth had caused some parts of its business to change dramatically in a short period of time, which sometimes meant the skills and the scope of work we need with our leadership team also changed just as quickly. Discord held deal talks this year with Microsoft about an acquisition that could have topped $10 billion, according to the people briefed in the talks who were not authorized to speak about it publicly, though the deal did not go through. Microsoft declined to comment. Mr. Citrone recently repeatedly declined to comment on conversations with other companies, saying that only that Discord gets a lot of interest. He would not say whether he was considering taking the company public, but he said that there's only a few ways that this kind of thing plays out. Well, how about that? That's a very benevolent ruling. Looks like quite a figure. I'm going to follow that up with this quick little factoid, a bit of information that the New York Times conveniently placed above this article. About five ways young people are using Discord. This is also by Kellen Browning. Hats off to you, Kellen Browning. This is a very enlightening article for people who are outside this community, I'm sure. Discord, the online messaging platform, has long been popular with gamers. In recent years, it has begun to catch on with mainstream audiences, too, fueled in part by the coronavirus pandemic. The site is particularly popular with young adults, teenagers, and almost teenagers. Here are five ways those young people are using Discord. Hmm. School. Because Nima Mortley, a 12-year-old in Bethesda, Maryland, goes to an online school, Discord is her main way of interacting with her classmates. You're not talking in the hallways or forming friend groups. Everyone is sharing emotes, she said, referring to Discord's custom emojis. When she talks with her classmates and friends on Discord, we'll use it for homework help or letting them know a teacher is in a meeting or if we just want to play video games together, Naima said. Text messaging. Asa Mele, a 12-year-old who lives outside Boston, said she used Discord to talk with other Formula One racing fans. Said he used... <laughs> okay. Cool. 12-year-old Formula One racing fan. I just had to reread that to make sure I was correct and interact with his friends and middle school classmates. The Discord, he said, has largely replaced text messaging for him. He might send five texts each day, but several hundred messages on Discord. Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, I don't use any of those, Asa said. In a server for classmates, students can get updates on assignments they may have missed and collaborate on homework, problems, in a voice channel, which is essentially a group phone call. Though Discord prohibits users under 13, Asa said nobody follows that rule, and he knows children as young as eight on Discord. Pandemic community. In Gjøvik, Norway, a 19-year-old Henrik Stranda uses Discord to chat with other fans of his favorite Twitch streamers like the chess grandmaster Hikaru Nakamura. As a gamer, he was attracted to the platform because it was easier to use than Skype. But during the pandemic, he said he started using it to connect with his high school friends and now chats with people at his university. It's not really like any other social platform where you post or have a fee like Instagram, Mr. Stranda said. 
It's kind of like a space for talking. On New Year's Eve, he said, he plans to travel to Finland to meet a friend he made on Discord. Gaming community. In Nicaragua, Brandon Ha, a 16-year-old who has developed an anime game on Roblox, the gaming site popular with children, which is... Uh, I'll, I'll just continue. A, a gaming site is not what it is. A gaming site popular with children runs a Discord server with over 100 fans of his game. I'll try to find a story that explains a little bit um, what Roblox is, but it is not. It's... Let me... It is absolutely not a website. It is a money-printing machine that ma that is also a video game. It's also, like, a lifestyle, and is also... Man, it is... Anyone... It is, like, imagine when Minecraft came out. You're like, wow, all the kids in the world, that's wild. They're all into Minecraft, top to bottom, every age, all groups, every... It's wild, unbelievable. Roblox times 10. Like, literally every child knows what Roblox is, and they're all way into it, or they're into something like it. That aspect of... Um, it's like... Uh, it's basically like digitized play. Imagine, like, digitized play with your friends that used to play outside, and you'd play little imaginary games, and, and, and you come up with these concepts, but they're just, like, basic ideas. And, and, and through software, basically... If you can imagine, I mean, this is a pretty like high concept, but like that's, it's what they're doing is is they're creating virtual worlds and experiences and role playing scenarios that are digitizing, essentially, the utility of play, in a brand new way, and um, parents love it, I think, I, I I just know I've read articles about that, so, anyway, I digress quite a bit. I will continue. He's a big fan of the platform, Brandon Ha, um, and uses it to chat with people who might play his game, such as how a celebrity might occasionally interact with fans on Twitter or Instagram. Discord, he said, got off to a bad start, at least in terms of perception, with headlines about child predators and white nationalists flocking to it. Because of that perception, though, and because of a belief among many people his age that Discord is mostly for nerdy gamers, Brandon said that he and his friends at school were not open about their use of the platform. It's something that's embarrassing for us, he said. A common insult to frequent Discord users, or to moderators who spend hours on online communities, Brandon said, is that they need to go out, exercise, and touch grass. Touch grass is definitely the one that you'll see the most. Um... But one side of its growing popularity, some of his friends who are girls are now using Discord, he said. I'll wrap it up here. Music in Dungeons and Dragons. Kylie Jacobs, a 23-year-old San Diego resident, uses Discord to call with her friends during their weekly musical album discussion group and to play the role-playing game Dungeons and Dragons. Ms. Jacobs, who works in medical devices company, had never used Discord before the pandemic and does not play video games. But... She got on the platform on the advice of her friends. I mostly just use this for a really specific purpose. For talking to friends or playing games, she said. Um, I, 
would also go and suggest reading Kellen's article if you are into game stuff. Go read his article about video game maker to pay $100 million over discrimination. Riot Games, the maker of League of Legends and, and, and uh, all that. They deserve more than that. USA Today snapshots. This is uh, the cover first section of Wednesday's paper, bottom left corner, how guests get it wrong. What party hosts cite as the most common bad behaviors from their attendees? Stealing, 32%. Hmm. Getting belligerent when drinking, yeah, 29%. That's, that's a lot of people. That's your, that's okay. Always causing fights, 27%. Mm. Yeah. Overstaying welcome, 8%. Having lots of enemies, 4%. I, I just like, I mean, clearly that's one third of people are constantly arguing and fighting. Maybe they should just not be hanging out with their family. But I would say that having lots of enemies, 4% is the most interesting thing to me. So you're being interviewed by uh, a polling person they're asking you you know when party guests come over and they have bad behaviors you know like what's what's the deal what are they um what are they up to what are they how are they getting your goat and you're saying four percent of these people are responding to the rta outdoor living survey said that um having lots of enemies i hate when i have people over and they have lots of enemies like, I'm inviting over a, a super villain. Like, who? That's not a. That's not a thing. Okay. All right. All right. So we learned about Discord. Learned about John Madden. We learned them all from yesterday's paper because I had to re-record it today, which is fine. But now we're going to read very quickly. The only thing that I haven't read in front of the microphone yet because I want to change it up. The other thing isn't really relevant yet, actually. It's a little ahead of time. Um, but I want to read this. Because it's not too long. This is a... What would you call this? This is New York Times Magazine's this week's... Or last week's, I guess, for December 26th. It's like... Uh, well, I'll just, I'll just read it. Beverly Cleary. She was a troublemaker as a child and created Ramona Quimby for mis other mischievous kids by Sam Anderson. She was born in 1916. Beverly Cleary was put on academic probation after first grade. Her biggest problem was reading. It didn't interest her. The assigned books were all bland educational stories about polite children. Why, she wondered, didn't anyone write stories about real kids? Funny, angry, joyful, unruly vortexes of love and chaos. Kids who felt anxious, broke the rules, threw tantrums, pulled one another's hair. Kids like her and her friends? Like, what was the matter with the authors? After college in the 1940s, Clary was forced to ask this question again. She got a job as a children's librarian, and she found herself sympathizing deeply with patrons who couldn't find anything good to read. How were these rowdy little rascals, ragtag kids who scattered their baseball mitts across the circulation desk, supposed to connect with the generic adventures of Dick and Jane and Sally. 
Why would a puppy ever say something as boring as bow wow? I like the green grass. Hillary solved this problem by becoming an author herself. Today, we can measure her vast success in all kinds of ways. She published more than 40 books, sold in excess of 90 million copies, and won dozens of awards. Back in 2000, the Library of Congress declared her a living legend. But Cleary's most important achievement was unquantifiable. She helped children, real complex children with real complex lives, begin to find themselves in books. Cleary's signature character, Ramona Quimby, is exactly the sort of unwieldy child who would have been excluded from old-fashioned kids' lit. Ramona is proud, loud, fiery, sloppy, creative, and energetic, a geyser of trouble. Book by book, she barges her way through elementary school, vexing teachers and testing her parents and irritating her big sister, Beezus. Beezus was young Ramona's mispronunciation of her sister's actual name, Beatrice. Ramona squeezes an entire tube of toothpaste into the sink, cracks a raw egg on her head at lunch, gets her new boots stuck in the mud at a construction site, and boings a classmate's curly hair so relentlessly that she gets suspended. She loves her new pajamas so much that she wears them to school under her clothes, overheating herself. This was Cleary, Cleary's great gift. The ability to map the strange Newtonian physics of childhood, its bizarre laws of proportion and gravity, its warped space-time. She loved, especially, the spots where kids' inner worlds, urgent, intimate, and self-evident, conflicted with the outer world of adults, cold, foreign, and arbitrary. Clary understood that. To a child, 30 minutes often feels like 30 years, and that small setbacks, e.g., uh, should you say example given? Oh, example given. Failing to sew a perfect pair of slacks for your stuffed elephant. Elephant, of course. Can feel like an apocalypse. For Ramona, the grown-up world is loaded with logical inconsistencies. She is late to school one morning because, quite reasonably, she thinks that a quarter past eight must mean 8.25, the same way that a quarter of a dollar means 25 cents. On the first day of kindergarten, her teacher tells her offhandedly, sit here for the present. The teacher means sit here for now, but Ramona misunderstands, and the kids get up and play games and sing songs. Ramona sits there dutifully, waiting for the gift she believes she has been promised. Many of Clary's stories grew out of her own life. She was the only child of a distant, depressed, overbearing mother. Quote, you are the type that will fade quickly, her mother once told her, out of nowhere, while they were washing dishes. Accordingly, Clary spent much of her life feeling naughty, she was, admittedly, a bit of a troublemaker. A Girl from Yamhill, the first of her two memoirs, contains epic catalogs of childish hijinks. On the family farm, she amused herself by tripping chickens with a long pole. She touched a hot stove after her father told her not to. She yanked her cousin off a chair after an argument over who drew better birds. She stood up at the very top of a Ferris wheel. She once tried to cut off all her hair so she could look like her Uncle Fred. Her grandfather used to pay her a nickel to sit still for five minutes. Sometimes other adults would compliment Cleary's parents by telling them they had a lovely girl, and she resented this mightily. I did not feel lovely, not one bit, Cleary writes. I felt restless, angry, rebellious, disloyal, and guilty. These are the kinds of feelings that Cleary preserved in her books. She wrote by hand, with cheap ballpoint pens, and as her fame grew decade after decade, she always resisted publicity. She referred to let the books speak for themselves, which they do. Still, certain details in the novels are inevitably dated. She amused herself by punching buttons on the cigarette machine in time to the Muzak, which is playing Tie a Yellow Ribbon Round the Old Oak Tree. But the tone is alive as ever. 
Ramona helped me as a boy in the 1980s to learn the process to learn to process the big complex world around me. Jeering classmates, fighting parents, car sickness, economic swings, and Ramona remains waiting to connect with future generations. After I learned of Cleary's death, I went and picked up a used copy of Ramona and the Ramona the Pest from my local bookstore. On the title page, written in cle <laughs> with clear pride of ownership, was a message from a child. One of 10 or 15 years ago. It's impossible to say. In blue pen, she listed her phone number. If lost, the child wrote, call Jessica. Also in the same section, a little bit uh, sooner, a couple pages back, same magazine. DMX, his music seethed with aggression and the kind of pain black men rarely get to air in public by Ismail Muhammad. DMX was born in 1971. In Sonnet 19, the poet John Milton agonized over the loss of his vision bemoaning the prospect he would spend half my days in this dark world and wide, bereft not only of his sight, but of spiritual purpose. I hear an echo of Milton's dark world in not only the title of the rapper Earl Simmons' 1998 debut album, It's Dark and Hell is Hot, but in the tortured substance of his concerns. The title suggests a man thrown into dangerous circumstances without the benefit of guidance from a higher power, where the only way to survive is to accept a devil's bargain. Life here on Earth is possible, but only if he admits, only if he submits to a moral darkness that will condemn him to hell. The rapper was obsessed with how this quandary could hollow him out and ultimately consume him. Thus, his stage name, DMX, an acronym for Dark Man X. The moral price of a life in a fallen world was not a thought exercise for Simmons, who died this past April of a cocaine-induced heart attack. Born in Mount Vernon, New York in 1970, he was the only son of Arnett Simmons and Joe Barker. Barker left, leaving Simmons, a teenager, to raise her child alone in Yonkers. She struggled with how to raise a black son amid the poverty of the school street, street projects and subjected him to outrageous abuse. In a 2019 interview with GQ, Simmons recounted being beaten so badly by Arnett that she knocked his teeth out. He was six years old. The mistreatment cloaked his life in almost total grinding fear. You couldn't be too confident in my situation, Simmons said in the 2020 BET series Rough Riders Chronicles. Confidence would get you beaten. Expression would get you your ass whooped. Confidence would get you beaten. And expression would get your ass whooped. The abuse begot criminal and antisocial behavior. Simmons once stabbed another kid in the face with a pencil, which in turn triggered more abuse. One summer, trying to discipline Simmons, Arnett locked him in his bedroom for months. He was allowed to leave only for bathroom breaks. In 1983, Arnett effectively severed their relationship when she took him to the children's village group home on the pretense that they were just visiting. It was a trick. She left him there. Right then and there, Simmons remembered in Chronicles, I learned to just put away, conceal, bury whatever bothered me. End of story. I 
think another side of me was born right there and enabled me to protect myself. But a love of music was born at Children's Village, too. And when he returned to Yonkers two years later, he clicked up with a local rapper named Reddy Ron. They would wander the streets, Ron rapping while Simmons beatboxed behind him. Ron encouraged him to rap, but according to Simmons, he also betrayed the burgeoning 14-year-old artist by tricking him into smoking a crack-laced blunt. That incident initiated an addiction whose shadow would haunt his life. Ron has denied this. From the beginning, Simmons' love of music was bound up with mistrust, dependence, and aggression. He described wandering yonkers, looking for people to rob, and if I came across a rap battle, just as good. Between 1986 and 1990, Simmons shuttled between jail and the streets, writing songs all the while, until Joaquin Wadeen, an aspiring music executive who had co-founded the record label Rough Riders, found Simmons through his demo tape. Simmons' drug habit and criminal streak forestalled his success, but he eventually secured a deal with Def Jam. He garnered a reputation as a battle rapper whose trademarks were an obsession with dogs, skillful modulation of speech and cadence, and a snarling bark of a voice that conveyed a sense of lawless menace. When Def Jam released It's Dark and Hell is Hot, it debuted at number one on the Billboard 200 and went on to achieve quadruple platinum status. He was a curious figure in an era still high on Puff Daddy's luxurious vision for rap, an armed robber who rapped about crime's corrosive spiritual effects in a voice that sounded as if it was coming from a serrated throat. His follow-up albums, Flesh of My Flesh, Blood of My Blood, 1998, and And Then There Was X, 1999, excellent album, each debuted at number one and went multi-platinum. Between 1998 and 2003, in fact, his first five albums debuted at number one, making him the first artist ever to do so. DMX became just as popular as Notorious B.I.G. and Jay-Z by presenting himself as an instinctual but anxious bruiser with the sense that his sins were damning him. When you do dirt, you get dirt, he rapped on the Lox's 1998 song Money, Power, and Respect. On other occasions, he thought of himself as a human sacrifice. The cover of Flesh of My Flesh depicted him bathed in blood, hand raised and Christ-like presenting his stigma. Hollywood tried to turn Simmons into a movie star. He appeared in five films between 1998 and 2004, including Hype Williams' visually seminal gangster morality play, Belly. Good one. But the old miseries dogged him no matter the dizzying professional heights he reached. His success was followed by an equally dizzying fall from grace, continued addiction, arrest for animal cruelty, tax evasion, possession, and a host of other crimes, and the complete squandering of his earnings. On songs like Rough Rider's Anthem, triumphant production obscures the way he wrestles with his demons that precipitated his fall. How can I maintain with mad shit on my brain, he asks. The song mixes images of criminal bravado with a shame and doubt that were DMX's calling card. Yeah, I know it's pitiful, he says, of his behavior on the convo. Oh, I'll be of his behavior. On the convo, he stages a dialogue with God about his wretchedness. Here I am, confused and full of questions. Am I born to lose, or is this just a lesson? As littered with a truly shocking brand of misogyny and homophobia as his songs could be, they were also inventive in how they took to the violent fantasies of genres like gangster rap and transformed them into music laden with vulnerability about Simmons' own spiritual travails and mental health struggles. On one song, he declares himself a, quote, manic depressive with extreme paranoia, end quote. In interviews, meanwhile, 
He was not shy in addressing his desire for an enduring intimacy, one that wouldn't end in betrayal. In a recent interview with the rapper Talib Kweli, he recounted the story of Reddy Ron with a frank confusion about how a man could do that to a child. It's hard not to hear his music as a kind of trustfall, a hope the transparency regarding the pain he was in would manifest the tenderness he desired. In the director Christopher Frierson's 2021 documentary, DMX, Don't Try to Understand, we see Simmons freestyling in a parking lot with a few younger rappers, weaving together stories of knotted frustration and resigned hopelessness. One of the younger rappers breaks down in tears, and DMX readily embraces him. I barely know you, he says, but I love you. Hmm. A real one. Okay. Let's see. Here's our finale. Okay. Okay. Let's see. So first I'm going to tell you about the... Uh, the world's most popular 10-year-old, and then we'll flip it and we'll tell you about the world's most popular 100-year-old. Um, so first, we're going to talk about Ryan Kaji. And this article was written before the toy holiday season, but it's still completely relevant. And uh, it's really just about the future. So, The World's Most Popular 10-Year-Old by Belinda Luscombe. Ryan Kaji is the YouTube sensation behind your child's holiday wish list. In human years, Ryan Kaji is number is 10. In YouTube views, he's 48,597,844,873. I'm sure by now, many, many more. Well over 50 billion. If, in our digital age, a person's life can be measured by their online footprint, Ryan's is the size of a brachiosaurus, which, as a lot of Ryan's fans know, is gargantuan. Another way of putting it is that if even every one of Ryan's YouTube views were just 30 seconds, he has been watched 4,500 times longer than he has been alive. There's a sacred text that talks about an era of peace and harmony, where lions lay down with lambs. The kicker is that a child is in charge of it all. Except for the part about peace and harmony, we are in an age where a child does indeed rule a significant subsection of the internet. Ryan has been the highest paid YouTube star for three years straight. The highest paid YouTube star for three years straight is a 10-year-old child. He's now 10. That means that the first time that he was the highest paid YouTube star, he was seven. I will continue. Partly because he has nine channels on the platform. His revenue last year, according to Forbes, was about $30 million. Most of that was from his far-flung merchandise empire. He, or his parents has lent his name to 1,600 licensed products in 30 countries, including Skechers, Pajamas, Roblox, Bedding, Watches, we'll get into Roblox eventually, Sporting Goods, Water Bottles, Furniture, Toothpaste, and of course, Toys, as well as a legion of YouTube videos Ryan has shows on Nick Jr., the Emmy-nominated Ryan's Mystery Playdate, and Amazon Kids Plus Super Spy Ryan, and his own streaming channel. Aren't you glad that you stuck through the program so that I can give you this information? Aren't you so glad that you stuck it through to now? I know you are. That's what you're going to do every episode is you stick through to the end because that's where I'm going to put all the good stuff. You just have to keep 
sticking in there. His animated superhero alter ego, Red Titan, will, did, appear for the second time as, as a Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade balloon. Ryan is bar none the crown prince of YouTube, says Kyun Mai, uh, founder of Moving Image and Content, a creative agency for digital content. What a company description. She does not represent him. How did we get to a place where a person can be the linchpin of a media empire before he has armpit hair? And of all the exuberant folks on YouTube, why has this kid raked in the most cash? Part of the answer that this is no ordinary child, but another part is that Ryan's rise speaks volumes about the way entertainment, business, technology, and Ryan's family life have changed in the past decade. Ryan's prominence and the existence of the genre known as kidfluencer is a source of consternation to many parents, authorities, and child development experts. Four of the 10 US YouTube channels that are with the most subscribers are geared toward young children. Legislation has recently been introduced in the Senate, which may curtail the activities of Ryan and his fellow YouTube tycoons, toycoons. Ugh. But his ascent has also shown how profoundly childhood has been and is being reshaped and then it may be too late to put the jack back in the box. That whole, don't, don't write that. One thing that everyone agrees on is that that much of Ryan's fame was a result of timing. He was about three and a half in 2015 when he asked his mom, Loan Guan, the family changed its name to Kaji to preserve some anonymity as they got famous, if he could be on YouTube like other kids. Loan, 37, was a science teacher on spring break looking for kid-friendly activities. She and her husband, Shion, 34, had watched YouTube in college and had a grasp of the format and how the algorithm worked. At the same time, technological changes were making online video more accessible to kids. It was like a project. <laughs> it was like a perfect storm when Ryan came in, says Mai. Laptop prices had dropped low enough that people were moving away from tablets. The YouTube Kids app had launched. Parents gave their, quote, Parents gave their iPads to their children as entertainment devices, and that made it easy for kids to navigate the internet, she says. Feeling stretched in terms of childcare, lots of parents needed to keep their kids occupied. When young children see lots of colors and sounds and movement in a screen, it's almost like a mobile above the crib. A mobile. <laughs> says Dr. Jerry Radeski, a developmental behavioral patrician, pediatrician at the University of Michigan. They calm down, they focus. Studies have shown that it often leads to less body movement. I love having less body movement, <laughs> especially when I'm a baby. The period after 2015 also marked a growth phase for the so-called creator economy. With the advance of digital ad technology, advertisers realized they could get more traction from, a micro from market targeting followers of a regular person, an influence. Well, a regular person as opposed an influencer as opposed to a celebrity. That's confusing wording. Among the most popular figures when the Kajis uh, began were the unboxers. Of course, maybe you remember this. It was just, um, well, I'll read along. People who filmed themselves opening shoes or makeup or kids opening toys. Uh, this was like a huge thing. This, this kind of started with high-end technology phones specifically then moved to like other tech apple stuff anything it came in like a fancy box basically i mean uh, at some point like i think even pretty much every single company followed like any single any company that wanted 
and unboxing started to follow Apple's packaging design practices simply to invite these kinds of videos to be made. And if you go and search for any product that is made in that way, and then they do send out review copies of things, people absolutely do make unboxing videos. And they even, I mean, it's an industry standard term. They send things out to be unboxed. They make rules about what can be unboxed and when for movies, for video games, for all kinds of stuff, TV shows, they send them out to everyone um, that they want to, you know, have an extra incentive to write something about their stuff, but, or, you know, about the product. Um, that's how it became codified. All the views, I mean, you know. But now, we're talking about kids uh, opening toys and influencing other kids. So where's... Oh, yes. Here we go. So that's what Loanne and Ryan did. Ironically, Ryan had not really liked playing with toys as a baby except one a remote-controlled car, which his dad said he could more or less operate by the age of six months. This meant every relative gave him toy cars when the unboxing trend spun off into the giant egg trend, no explanation. Luan hid those cars in in a giant paper mache egg she'd made. The resulting video, all caps, in quote, this is the name of the video, giant, all caps, Lightning McQueen egg surprise with 100-plus Disney Cars toys shot Ryan's Toys Review, the channel name, as the channel was then called, into the stratosphere. I would love to watch a video called Giant Lightning McQueen Egg Surprise with 100-plus Disney Cars toys, said someone. That one video became his most popular video on our channel for the next two years, says Shion. It currently has more than a billion views. At first, strange comments below the video alarmed them. It was all gibberish, said Shion. Then he saw Ryan typing random letters beneath videos and realized other kids were doing that too. Some of them may have not spoken English. We noticed a huge percentage of the viewership coming from Asia, said Shion. Ryan's channel had just uh, had launched just as YouTube was spreading to Asia, and videos like Ryan's filled a void that TV had overlooked. Shion was born in Japan. Pan and Luan in Vietnam. For a lot of minorities, says Mai, YouTube was the place where you saw people like you. Ryan's Toys Review quickly became one of YouTube's most popular channels. By 2016, both parents had quit their jobs to make videos full-time. Shion is a Cornell-educated structural engineer, which may be why she sensed the danger of having Ryan, just five, carry the bulk of the show. He beefed I don't. He beefed up the production team to avoid burnout and had animators create characters based on Ryan's personality for more content. Yes, all these activities described are uh, <clears throat> uh, beneficial to the child. Shion and Loanne also appear in the videos and play with toys and games on their own channel. Oh, buddy. There may be a place in which one small family can produce so much intellectual property and be left in, in peace, but that place is not the USA, circa 2017. Ryan caught the eye of Chris Williams, who was a former Disney and Maker Studios executive uh, who had watched media habits changed in real time. Oh, right, in the role of his job, I guess they're saying. I saw linear television's ratings falling off a cliff, he says. I saw how kids and family audiences are, are flocking to YouTube. His experience at Disney had also taught him about the power of building a franchise. There are stars, characters, and intellectual property on YouTube that have bigger audiences than the entire Disney Channel network. Why are we not thinking about them in the same way? 
In 2017, he started Pocket Watch to do the licensing deals with YouTube stars, and the Kajis, who had formed their own production company, Sunlight Entertainment, were among its first partners. The move came just in time. Merchandisers were not the only ones who noticed how much content was directed at the very young. Parents, child development experts, media watchdogs, and eventually legislators did too, and many didn't love what they saw. There were videos of adults playing with toys in inappropriate ways. Some of the families on YouTube fell apart. Others seemed to be treating their children badly to draw clicks. Advertisers pulled back. YouTube removed comment sections and kept ads off some videos. It wasn't enough. In 2019, YouTube and its parent company, Google, paid $170 million to settle allegations by the Federal Trade Commission, FTC, and the New York State Attorney General that it collected data about minors and violated the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, which you do not want to violate. Oh, that is why they paid $170 million. Wow. Um, A violation of that... um, (coughs) Pardon me. A violation of that policy is lampooned in the show Silicon Valley. You may remember if you have seen it, or if you see it one day, you will remember this. Many kid-centric channels lost the bulk of their revenue. By 2020, YouTube required creators to specify whether or not their videos were for kids and stop feeding personalized ads to those that were. But thanks to the merch deals, the kaiju sailed on. Williams says the franchise is the company's biggest earner. The reforms may have lessened the problem of advertising to children, but they did nothing to change the thorny fact that watching endless hours of a child opening toys is dubious, at best, educational or social development value. There's not much definitive research on what kind of media a diet does to a a developing brain, but the small amount out there is dismaying. In a study out of the University of Colorado Boulder, 78% of parents reported their kids watched unboxing videos on a regular basis, with almost 17% estimating it at between three and nine hours per week. The more time a child spends watching unboxing videos, says Harsha, an associate professor of advertising who presented the paper at a journalism conference in 2019, the more likely they are to ask for things and throw tantrums if the parents weren't purchasing those things. Studies have shown that children form parasocial relationships with the media figures they encounter. Yes. We were just talking about that with uh, the kids getting on the Discord servers for Twitch personalities. They were dealing with uh, with a developing brain that is figuring out the world, says Dr. Michael Rich, a pediatrician with the director of the Boston Children's Hospital Digital Wellness Lab. And if one of the very powerful inputs into that developing brain is, look how happy Ryan is with his toy, of course they're going to say, I want that. Just before YouTube and Google paid the fine, the nonprofit Truth in Advertising, Tina, filed a complaint with the FTC against the Kajis, who then changed the name of their channel from Ryan's Toy Review to Ryan's World. The group had found that Ryan played with toys that would appeal to kids five years or age or younger in 90% of the channel's 200 most popular videos. Tina claimed the sponsored videos were not clearly enough delineated. Sometimes they weren't adequately disclosing such that an adult would know, and in other times it's just the fact that this vulnerable population of toddlers cannot differentiate between organic content and ads. Says Bonnie Patton, Tina's executive director. I It doesn't take an executive director of the, the truth and whatever, truth and advertising, it doesn't take you to be the director of truth and advertising to determine that. That's all I know. That seems like obvious to me, but, you know, 
All right. Williams, oh, the FTC also does not talk about pending investigations, but I mean, I don't know. We shouldn't, uh, nothing's happening there. Williams says the Kaji family has been unfairly singled out because they offer the biggest target. He points out that they have shifted to more educational content with science experiments and travel videos. At the same time, he is open to greater research and regulation. I worry about the effects of all of it. Not just, just, not just what we see on YouTube and other platforms, but movies and TV, he says. Nobody wants to do the work around researching this stuff. They just want to make proclamations. Hey, it's different from what I grew up on. It must be bad. The Kajis maintain that they follow the guidelines, in quotes, for labeling their content, but says Loan, quote, if I could do it over, I would try to incorporate more of the educational component right from the get-go, end quote. Easy to say. A legal team screens their videos, but they do not have a child development expert on staff. One solution would be to take down the old unboxing videos and stop putting up new ones. <laughs> yes. After all, Sunlight Entertainment releases 25 new videos a week across its channels. But surveys show that in the U.S., the number one thing for our channel is they still want Ryan playing with toys, says Xion. In August, however, YouTube announced that it would remove overly commercial content from the YouTube Kids app and mark sponsored videos more clearly. I'm sure a five-year-old will clearly understand that clear indication. And on September 30th, Congress began to take a closer look at social media companies. Democratic Senators Edward Markley... Markey of Massachusetts and Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut reintroduced the Kids Act, which would force sites like YouTube to stock, stop recommending unboxing videos for kids. I highly doubt that that will go anywhere. Uh, YouTube declined to answer specific questions for time, but pointed to a raft of policies developed with child development experts to in, uh, intended to keep young viewers safe. Nevertheless, Pandora has already completed her unboxing. Ryan's branded toys are everywhere, and he's not alone. There's a new cup of stars coming on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube. Vlad, eight, and Nikki, six, Russian-born brothers who live in Florida, released their first toy figures in June. Nastya, seven, also a Russian-born Floridian, launches her dolls November 15th. Kidfluencers no longer have to hawk toys. They can just become them. That's concerning. Language. Any discerning viewer who watches Ryan's videos notices within a minute they don't offer much in the way of entertainment. The production is amateurish. There's no narrative arc. It, this is intentional. The Kaijis are not artists. They're parents. They started making videos, they say, because their kid wanted to and was good at it. We don't really get to do multiple takes, says Loanne. What I get from him, that's what I'm going to use. The DIY nature of the videos also mimics, they hope, what it's like to go on a play date. We don't want the viewers to watch our videos one after the other, says Shion. What we ideally want kids to do is watch our video, and then that inspires them to have an idea for what they want to do after they put down their iPad. At the on Do you think Steve Jobs was thinking about children holding that? Well, people were. Many sci-fi writers were. Futurists were. Futurists, what is that? That's nothing person who's that's just a person um i am completely off course uh what i get from him is what i'm gonna use the diy nature of the videos also mimics they hope to go on a play day at the onset of the pandemic they put up several videos of ryan doing homework so kids could feel like they were studying with a friend interesting 
It's difficult to ascertain if kids do indeed go play after watching the videos. The fact that some Ryan's World videos are hours long suggests that a certain amount of sedentariness is allowed, if not encouraged. Many parents loathe them. They are overwhelmingly... They overwhelmingly garner one-star reviews on sites like Common Sense Media. It was Ryan's World that caused Mike Lutringer in Houston to swear off YouTube kids forever. When his second daughter was born and his wife needed to attend to her, he put on an educational Ryan video for his other child. But very rapidly, it'll transition over to marketing and sales and reviews, he says. You can see how they designed it to really capture the attention of the child. Delana Carlson in Galesburg, Illinois, on the other hand, says that during the pandemic, her two children would watch Ryan or another kidfluencer and then try to play the way that they did. Occasionally, they'll ask for a play date with their internet friend. I think they assume that they can just go meet these kids, she said. I have thought about this stuff. Like, is that depressing? Or is that weird? But corporations pay to have a dress-up Spider-Man come to the grocery store. How is this different? Kun Mai, the marketer, thinks... This is one of the secrets of Ryan's success. These kids, I think, are really lonely, she says. Ryan provides the emotional connection. As online friends go, Ryan is a Hallmark-level cherub. He appears to have a bottomless vat of enthusiasm for any toy-slash-room-slash-situation he encounters. In interviews, he is cheerful and eager, with an age-appropriate inability to be self-reflective. He loves school, especially math. He swims, plays soccer, does taekwondo, but gymnastics is his favorite. He hates when he can't find his lunchbox. If he could have any superpower, it would be super speed. When he grows up, he wants to be a game developer or a comedian who is a YouTuber but who makes funny videos. In quotes. During the pandemic, Luan homeschooled the kids. When the Kaijis tested Ryan to see if he had fallen behind, they found out he was several grades ahead. One of the reasons they moved to Hawaii this year is for a more academically challenging school than his public school in Houston. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. The other interest, interestingly, is that they felt the kids were spending too much time on screens. In Hawaii, they take more walks, which Ryan first found exhausting. He's also learning the piano and Japanese, but he's not crazy about either. There are two ways to look at the kaiji parents. One is that they have dragooned their offspring into living out their lives on camera to get rich. The other, the one they present, is that they stumbled into a world where their child became a star and they tried to keep up. Ryan's on-screen ability, they say, is a big, as a big surprise to them as anyone. He often takes a video in a new direction during shooting, telling the editors what effects to add as he goes. On or off camera, he's the exact same way, says Shion. He genuinely connects with his viewers. Lest anyone think he is a that's pure parental boasting, Luan and Ryan's five-year-old twin sister also love making videos. But it's not as natural to them. And then, in parentheses, yes, they already have their own line of toys. The journey wasn't only, uh, hasn't always been a thrill ride. In 2003, Loanne spent a month in jail for shoplifting, and after Ryan got famous, her arrest record became public knowledge. The family did exactly one in-person event with Ryan in Bentonville, Arkansas. Thousands of families turned out, and the resulting melee shook them up. They reject the accusation that Ryan is their workhorse. Luann cites an incident on the set of Playdate when Ryan hurt his ankle. The production adjusted the scenes he'd shoot so he could sit, and after a break, kept filming. Luann agreed with the... <laughs> that sounds more condemning than helpful to your argument. Luann agreed with the decision, but then adds, if that happens at home, we would not be filming for the next week or two. 
The Kaijis also say that while the family will go to L.A. for a spell to shoot his shows, Ryan's YouTube videos take just a few hours a week. He belongs to a local sports clubs and also goes to school like other kids. What most worries Shion are families who try to emulate the Kaiji's success more recklessly. Ryan is the public face of Kidfluencers, so any YouTube parent who is less than exemplary might reflect badly on him. Interesting thought process. Pocket Watch and YouTube issue manuals on how to... Oh, that's great. They issue manuals on how to be both parent and programmer. And Shion hints that he's trying to start a working group of YouTube families to set up industry standards. He won't go into details, but he says he would like more input from YouTube, especially on how families manage their finances, their kids' time, and fame. After all, the platform is taking a healthy cut of the money, and the miners who have made their name on it have, a f have few legal protections. The Kaiji say a portion of the revenue from the family business goes into trust accounts they've established for their children, a portion. Uh, I'm sure that they would have loved to discuss <laughs> if asked. The Kaiji say a portion of the revenue from the family business goes into trust accounts to service their children, and they have put all of Ryan's TV earnings into another trust. By law. There are children on YouTube now with some with more subscribers than Ryan. His parents seem somewhat relieved. I don't want YouTube to be his future career, says Loanne. We really want him to do something else. We're continuing right now because he's enjoying doing it. The question remains, having found the perfect platform for their child, can they persuade him to leave it? With reporting by Simone Shaw and Nick Pupley. I'll say. Hold on to that one for a while. It's worth following up with this. When it comes to her secret for a long and joyful life, Betty White is clear on one thing. I tried to enjoy <laughs> avoid anything green, she jokes. I guess it's working. Instead, she regularly indulges in hot dogs and vodka, which she prefers on the rocks with a, sl a splash of grapefruit juice. Let's put it this way, says White's executive personal assistant of nearly a decade, Kirsten Miklas. The health food craze just hasn't landed on her in the kitchen. There's no green juice. White's recipe for happiness is most definitely working. On January 17th, the beloved star, known for her unforgettable roles on TV shows like The Mary Tyler Moore Show and Golden Girls, will celebrate her centennial birthday. I'm so lucky to be in such good health and feel so good at this age, she tells people. It's amazing. But luck is not the only thing that keeps the actress going. I was born a cockeyed optimist, says White, who hails from Oak Park, Illinois, the only child of Horace, an electrical engineer, and Tess, a homemaker. I got it from my mom, and that never changed. I always find the positive. And so as a young girl, when she found out she couldn't become a forest ranger as she had hoped, the profession didn't favor women at the time, she turned her attention to writing and composed a graduation play for her grammar school. Is anybody worth her salt? I wrote myself into the lead, she told people in 1999. All of a sudden, this was so much more fun than anything else. It was, delish it, it was delicious. I like that. After high school graduation, jobs on stage and in radio eventually led her to an exciting new medium, television. The mirth and mischief and blue-eyed twinkle that have made White a national treasure remain in full force. Meekless recalls telling White recently that she was thinking about reconnecting with the former boyfriend. White offered some advice. Betty said, 
Well, if he doesn't want to be exclusive, screw him, Miklas says with a laugh. Then she paused, looked at me, and said, but don't screw him. That's Betty. Bubbly, naughty, and sweet, all at the same time. She's exactly who people think she is. Her comedic timing is still impeccable. White lives quietly these days in Los Angeles, enjoying crossword puzzles and card games, and watching animal documentaries. Jeopardy, though she misses Alex Trebek, her friend, and sports, especially golf tournaments. Betty lives a life of happiness, says her longtime agent and friend, Jeff Vitjus. She always thinks of others first, and she always stays positive, no matter what, even when I beat her at our favorite game of gin rummy. When many of her fondest memories include friends who are no longer there, White focuses on the present. She takes the losses hard, but then she puts one foot in front of the other, notes Miklas. The way she approaches life is, if I'm still here, I gotta keep going. Betty always finds the silver lining. She remains connected to her great love, her third husband, Alan Ludden, the host of Password, who died from stomach cancer in 1981 at the age of 63. She keeps a photo of him on her bedside table and blows him a kiss every morning, says Miklas. At night, when she opens the shutters, she blows him a kiss up in the sky. He's on her mind constantly. In her own way, White acknowledges that nothing lasts forever. After her golden retriever, Pontiac, died at 16 years old in 2017, the lifelong animal welfare advocate chose not to adopt another dog. As Miklas explains, she doesn't want to bring in anyone new because she doesn't want to leave them behind. Still, she is looking forward to her upcoming birthday, including a small celebration with a few furry guests. I'll surround myself with as many animals as possible, she says, and her passion hasn't dimmed for her longtime celebrity crush, Robert Redford. For her 99th birthday last year, White was given a life-size cutout of the actor-director. For a long time, we had him in the office entryway, notes Miklas. When she came in, she'd say, Hi, sweetheart. White White is hoping her ardor for Redford won't come as a blow for her friend Ryan Reynolds, her co-star in the hit 2009 film The Proposal, alongside Sandra Bullock. I've heard Ryan can't get over this thing for me, she quips, but Robert Redford is the one. Maybe there's still a chance. My mother always used to say, the older you get, the better you get, (laughs) White once said. Unless you're a banana. I hope you enjoyed that. And uh, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend. Um, please call the hotline, 888-842-2357. No, 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 really, don't call that. But uh, maybe call 505-557-7932. Maybe call that number. I don't know. And leave a message and see what happens. We'll find out. Um, the other thing is that uh, I never intend to charge anything for this show ever or any episode. Um, but I do request that you you donate to your local food bank, at least for now. That's that's all I can think of. Just do that. Maybe do that forever. I, I mean, do it all the time. I did it. Do it all the time as well. So you do that. You take that advice from me, and that will be the cost of this episode. And, uh, and uh, that's it. Go on with your day. Enjoy the rest of the things that you maybe read on your own. I don't know why you've been listening to one hour and so far 37 minutes of this, but I thank you for doing that. I hope I didn't make you too depressed. I hope that I made you laugh. I hope that the next time that we do this, maybe, I don't know. Let's see. What's today? Thursday. This will go up Thursday. 
Um, let's see. Let's do this again. Write this down in your book. Let's do this again uh, Monday afternoon. No. Let's do this. Let's do this Saturday morning. Write it in. Saturday morning. Okay. That'll be that. Let me find you something fun to go out on. Something I've been thinking about for a while. I spoke. 